You'll never believe who was in my office yesterday. Take a look. That's a cutout. Um, No, the cutout was of me, not... I didn't have time to see him. I got to work on Saturday. I got to be ready, but... No, as a get... I, I've, got, I've got this thought through, so just work with me here, right? So, no, as a, as a get well gift, the staff uh, gave Sarah and me tickets to last night's uh, uh, concert. So, anyway, we, uh, we were able to go, and wow, talk about a sing-along. You know, that's what that was. It was just one, one big sing-along. And so I had to help Sarah uh, with some of the words because, because she doesn't really appreciate classical music. So... Um, <laughs> but I'm from Oklahoma I mean I know classical music when I hear it and that was classical music but so there was something in the paper that Garth Brooks said yesterday that I just thought was really interesting Uh, he was talking about our community this is what he said maybe you've read it but what I love about this place he says what I love about this place is it's forever young a college town can get tired but this place stays forever young It's always lively, makes you feel young when you're here. That's a nice feeling. I thought that was really interesting. I really did. And, you know, was he just being nice? Or maybe there is something special about this place, about our community. Maybe there really is something um, almost, you know, unexplainable to someone who comes within, you know, the boundaries of Champaign-Urbana. A presence. Wonder what that might be. Um, we've had guests who've come to Windsor Road during the week and on Sunday, but I'm just thinking of just this past week. So the playground is open during the week and the cafe, and some folks you know, work remotely and so they're able to bring their work here and and it's wonderful to have this space for that and uh, you know when the weather is either too hot or too cold or too wet or whatever you know the the place ground is just a great place we had a guest who is not a member of this church doesn't attend this church but said this to one of our staff members when i come here i feel love i feel love and I'm thinking, what's that about? You know, what is that about? Some of you, in telling me your stories about how you have spiritually influenced the lives of others, I'll, I'll ask a question like, well, how, how did that influence get started? Or how did you, how did you obtain the credibility in the eyes of the person to whom you shared Christ, how did you get that credibility? And this is what you've said that they've said. That after knowing you and watching you and listening to you and interacting with you, they come to you and they say, there's something different about you. Something different about the way you talk. There's something different about your temperament, there's something different about how you relate to people, there's something different about your, just your ego, 
you're humble. You know, you don't have an inner lawyer that just kind of rises up to defend whatever needs to be defended. You don't have that. What's different about you? And then that opens a door, right? Now, what if, what if all three of those scenarios, community, church, community, and your individual life, what if, what if the answer was the same for all three? I believe it is. And the answer is found in Acts chapter 2, our scripture reading this morning. In our series over the book of Acts, uh, we've seen thus far uh, that while it's appropriately titled the Acts of the Apostles, when we get into reading this, we realize that the chief actor is Jesus. In fact, you could title this the unstoppable acts of the resurrected king. The unstoppable acts of the resurrected king. You see, this book is all about what Jesus is doing. Acts 1.1. In the first book, O Theophilus, which is, by the way, the Gospel of Luke, Acts is part two of a two-part series. In the first book, O Theophilus, that's the person to whom Luke is addressing. Luke is a travel companion of the Apostle Paul. He's a physician, and he wrote this biography and origins of the church. I have dealt with, verse 1, all that Jesus began to do. And the implication is that Jesus isn't finished Jesus is still doing. He's still acting. And what we see in Acts chapter 1 is that Jesus is preparing. Acts chapter 1 is all about preparing because God always prepares before he sends. He always readies before he releases. And in Acts chapter 1, we saw last week that Jesus is preparing his disciples by many convincing proofs. He floods them with his presence over 40 days. They saw this resurrected God-man in the flesh. He prepared them by promising the Spirit's power. We'll see that this week. And he prepared them by urging dependent prayer because there is always much to do after you pray, but there is nothing for you to do until you pray. Acts chapter 1 is about preparing. Acts chapter 2, then, is about pouring. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus pours out His Spirit upon His people. He pours out. He doesn't drizzle His Spirit. He floods His people with His Spirit. He pours out His Spirit upon us so that He might do His work through us. You see, He's still acting. And so, Acts chapter 2 is about Christ's presence with us and his power through us what i want to do this morning in acts chapter 2 is simply answer two questions what happened what happened and then what does this mean what does this mean and i'll tell you why this is so important to me personally church i i gotta tell you of all of the places in my life where it's really easy to be a believer, okay? Think about what, what, what's the easiest place in your life in order for you to be a believer. The easiest place for my life to be a believer is right now. It's right now. 
right here, right now, this is the easiest part for me to be able, because I have the accountability and the support of uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and, uh, you know, my wife sits on the front row in the first service, and, I mean, I've got all of the support and accountability. And, you know, in an hour, this room will be empty. And we will disperse. And man, that's when the fight starts, right? Because the world is fierce. And, and the, 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 world, the world doesn't care. So I've often wondered, what would it be like if after I left these doors, if just, just the physical presence of Jesus, instead of that cardboard cutout of Garth, if I had not a cardboard cutout, but if I just had Jesus, right? Jesus just came with me. And, and he could guide me, and he could direct me, and he could, uh, and, and he could warn me. Don't say that, no. Don't say that to her. Don't, don't, don't. Flick me on the ear if need be. You know, wouldn't that be just wonderful? <sighs> you know? Well, if you've ever wondered that, you're not the first because 2,000 years ago the disciples did. And to this, Jesus himself said in John chapter 16, verse 7, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is that the Holy Spirit in you is better and greater than the Jesus beside you. And these verses tell us why. So let's get to our questions. What happened and what does it mean? What happened? What happened? Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived. Pentecost, what does that word mean? Literally, the word means 50th. 50th, 50th day. So seven weeks, seven times seven, 49. After Israel's most important feast, the day after the seventh week, the 50th day, God commanded his people to celebrate the feast of weeks the Feast of Harvest. And so seven weeks after Passover, Israel's most important holiday, Holy Day, Israel kept another holiday, the Feast of Harvest, which was a thanksgiving offering to the Lord. They offered their first to God, trusting that God would generously provide more. Harvest in Israel, took place in our spring because nothing grows in the summertime in Israel. Uh, so they would plant in our fall. So springtime would come and it would be time to harvest and they would then take the first parts of their crops and they would offer them to God. So you see, Pentecost means there's, there's more to come. There's more to come. So it was an agricultural holy day. And by Jesus' day, Pentecost had also become a time where God's people commemorated the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. Exodus 20 says there was thunder and lightning and, and my goodness. <laughs> we, are we good? All right. Katie's going to let us know. Well, I'm going to keep preaching and we'll go from there. 
Where was I? I was on Sinai, and there was thunder and lightning, and <laughs> then an alarm came off, right? And Sinai was this, was this smoking spectacle. I shouldn't have said that. And the, but it was, but don't worry, okay? Man. Are we, are we okay? Julie and Katie in the back. Um, yeah, Stephen, open the door. Ask, are they okay? Are we good? Okay, we're good. We got the thumbs up. All right. So on Sinai, God gave the law to his people. But see, he, this is what you got to remember. So God, here, here's the, here's the uh, process. I rescue you, I gather you, I give you my law to tell you the, about the way of life I want you to live, and then I'm going to help you live it. So I'm gonna, I rescue you, and then I tell you how I want you to live. I don't wait until you start living the way you're supposed to live, and then I help you. That's not, that's not the Bible. The Bible is, I rescue you. Now, here's how a rescued life looks like. So identity always comes before activity. Here's who you are, and here's how I want you to live based on who you are. So that was what was celebrated at Pentecost as well. So we're talking agricultural holy day. There's more to come. And then now a historical holy day. Here's God's new way of life for those whom he has rescued. That's Pentecost, verse 1. And they were all together in one place. Now, they're not at the temple, remember? Verse, uh, chapter 1 says they're in the upper room where they've been praying and they've been waiting because Jesus said, wait, just wait for the promise of the Spirit. How many? 120. 120? Where do they get all the sofas for that? Now you're thinking like an American. First century Hebrew, they'd be, on the, they'd be seated on the floor, and, and they would be going back and forth. They would be maybe praying at the temple and, and then coming back, but, but they're in a season of anticipation. Jesus has been preparing them by many proofs, by the Spirit's power, by dependent prayer. In fact, in Luke 24, 49, Luke 24, 49, Jesus said, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And so there they were in the city, praying, waiting, together, in community. They're not separated. They're not off by themselves, but they're together, united. And it's a really important, really important word that Luke tells us in Luke 24. It says that they possessed great joy. Great joy. That's a really important detail. Because sometimes we get the idea that the Holy Spirit is for people who need an emotional lift. You know, the disciples were sad and gloomy and confused. And then the Holy Spirit came upon them and all of a sudden they were happy, perky extroverts. No. No. The believers were already happy, perky extroverts. And introverts. They'd seen Jesus for 40 days. They were unified. They were praying, worshiping, enjoying one another. This went on for days. And then while hope filled their hearts, the Holy Spirit flooded their lives. Verse 2, suddenly, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Now it doesn't say there was a rushing wind, but it was the sound like a mighty rushing wind. Think 
sound like tornado, that kind of sound. Think the sound of a freight train coming out of a lion's mouth, that kind of sound. A spectacular and unmistakable presence of God flooded their lives, the lives of the 120 men and women who were there, verses 3 and 4, and divided tongues as of fire, Notice, it's like the sound and as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, what does it mean in verses uh, 3 and 4 that they were speaking in other tongues? Well, my goodness, uh, time does not allow a full uh, study of um, the word tongues in the New Testament what we know from this particular chapter in this particular context is that the word tongue means language. Verse 6, each was hearing them speak in his own language. And verses 9 through 11 are a catalog of uh, the native languages listed. Uh, no less than 15 were listed. And the miracle was that these believers had never studied these other languages. But they were speaking them. And people were understanding them. Evidently, this event spilled out onto the streets because they weren't in the temple, remember? Onlookers heard and saw this company of Fearless Christ followers, 120 prophets, 120 proclaimers of Christ. In fact, they were, they were puzzled and perplexed and baffled. They, you know, uh, A, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, verse 8, and aren't these Galileans? These are, these are Galileans. How is it that, how, how's that happening? One scholar said it would be something like hearing the cast of Duck Dynasty suddenly breaking out into flawless French and Mandarin. <laughs> These Galileans. <laughs> and the content? The content. What was actually the content? Well, verse 11 says the content. It's that phrase, the mighty works of God. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, what's that? That's still pretty vague to a 21st century American, but not to a 1st century Hebrew. That would not be vague because to the Hebrew mind, the mighty works of God could only mean one thing, and that is the miracle that took place at the Red Sea where Moses, by the power of God's Spirit, parted the Red Sea. God's people were trapped between Pharaoh's army behind them and coming, chariots and all, and this massive sea before them, and they were sandwiched and squeezed in between. God, if you don't do something, we're dead. And God parted that sea, and they walked through that sea of death on dry land leaving slavery behind en route to the land of promise. Well, the first Moses told of another Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15. 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And it is to him you shall listen. Who is this second Moses? Oh, you know. This second Moses also passed through the sea of death, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of God. Don't you see? The mega works in Acts chapter 2 are nothing other than God acting in sending his son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh to teach, to do the miraculous, to die as a victim of injustice, to enter the sea of death, as the substitution for your sins and mine. And then after he was crucified, dead, buried, body cold, on that third day, God raised him from the dead to the glory of a resurrection body, the kind of body that you and I will possess in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus' resurrection body is the first of the new heavens and the new earth, you see. And that body now reigns on high. Jesus' resurrection body is very comfortable in earth or heaven. But one day God will bring the two together and Jesus' resurrection body is the first fruits. There's more to come always. Think about it, church. Just as Moses first met God in the burning bush, and just as Moses had descended from the fiery and stormy Sinai with the law etched on stone to equip Israel for life in the land of promise, now the second Moses, the unstoppable resurrected King Jesus, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and reigning from on high. He has poured out His Holy Spirit to etch the law of the King. And the law of the King is love. Love God, love people. That's the law. To etch this law on the hearts of His people. See, on the day of Pentecost, every believer became a burning bush. Every believer. On the day of Pentecost, Christ gave his spirit to his people that he might do his work through his people. Christ's spirit empowered Christ's people to declare Christ's word. That's the big idea of Pentecost. And not everybody got that idea. Verse 12. What does this mean? They said. And some of them, of course, mocked, right? Oh, they're just drunk. They're just flat drunk. And Peter says, no. No. Verse 15, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Come on, get real. And Peter then begins to explain what just, what just happened. And so there's meaning. And there are three meanings that I want us to review here. The first is this, it's, it's meaning number one. The gospel is for all. The gospel is for all. Um, have you ever wondered why the miracle of tongues, right? 
Why not on the day of Pentecost? Why not? Why, why didn't you know, the Lord will to just heal every sick person in Jerusalem? Or why not go to the cemetery and just raise the dead? Why tongues? Here's why. The miracle of speaking unlearned languages was to communicate that the gospel is for all. All tribes, all nations, all races, all peoples. The first gospel message was preached in all languages of the known world at the same time. You see, language and culture are the same, which means God accepts all cultures in His kingdom. The gospel is not just a Hebrew thing, and it's not an American thing. It is an every tribe on earth thing. And that's the point of verses 17 and 18. And in these last days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Male servants, female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, Laman Sane is a professor at Yale University of uh, Missions and uh, World Impact. And he wrote a fascinating book called Translating the Message. And it deals with language and culture. This is what he says. The many tongues of Pentecost demonstrate that God accepts all cultures within the scheme of salvation, reinforcing the position that Jews and Gentiles are equal before God. So the gospel's in every tribe on earth thing, and, and language is respected to communicate that. Uh, language, think the Tower of Babel in Genesis, where God scattered the nations who were full of pride, wanting to make a name for themselves and building this tower to reach to the heavens. God confounded them, different languages, and they were spread. Here in, at Pentecost, the curse of Babel is reversed and redeemed and restored. As, as all languages heard the gospel the very first time it was proclaimed. Wow. Now, I want to tell you something and I want to say this with courtesy and civility. This notion that God accepts all languages and cultures into his kingdom and that the gospel is not just a Hebrew thing, it's an every tribe on earth thing. W with respect and civility and with courtesy, church family, Islam does not share this. Islam teaches that their sacred text, the Quran, is inspired of Allah only in Arabic language. And that's partially because Muslims do not believe the Quran can be truly translated out of Arabic. So that if you want to hear the actual words of Allah, you must learn Arabic. And thus Islam Arabizes whatever people embrace it. But this Christianity doesn't believe that. For Christianity, the Bible is the inspired word of God in Hebrew, Greek, Spanish, English, French, Mandarin, in American Sign Language. 
And why? Because in Christ there's no privileged race or class, no one community or culture or language whose fortunes are, uh, in the eyes of God, more important than others. God does not absolutize any language or culture because God doesn't show partiality. And those of us who've been on missions trips, we've got a very important uh, supply drive that's coming up, and you'll see our display out by the column as you leave. Those of you who've been on such trips, whether you know whether you've been to Thailand or Africa or, or uh, Ukraine or the D Dominican Republic or Haiti, from Nepal, you know you, you've experienced the Spirit's love and warmth through your brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe you've just met them for 10 minutes, but you sense that. You sense something different. There's a spirit of love and peace. It's because you're both in Christ. You both belong to Christ, and therefore you belong to one another. In Nepal, there is a greeting, a traditional greeting in Nepal. And it is the greeting, Namaste. Namaste. And it means literally... I bow to the divine in you. Well, Nepal is a Hindu culture. <laughs> but Christians in Nepal do not greet one another with namaste. Rather, they greet one another with the phrase, Jameise, Jameise. The Jesus in me greets the Jesus in you. Amen? The gospel is for all. Truth number two, the gospel is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I don't know if you've ever driven um, into Washington, D.C. at night, but if you have, you've seen the you know, magnificent splendor of the needle-like obelisk, the Washington Monument, and it's just brilliant. And yet, I doubt if anyone in here has ever thought about those expensive, brilliant lights because those lights are there to illuminate something else. If they're doing their job, you're not thinking about those lights, you're thinking about the Washington Monument. And so with the Holy Spirit and Christ. The Holy Spirit illuminates and focuses us all upon Christ. And so by the way, when someone claims to be filled with the Spirit, but then they spend most of their time talking about their own experiences with the Spirit, you have reason to doubt whether that person is really filled with the Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit speaks through someone, you tend to forget about the person speaking. In fact, you don't even think about the Holy Spirit, but you find yourself thinking all about Jesus. And that's what's going on in Acts chapter 2 in this first gospel message delivered by Peter. I mean, this was the same guy who not very long ago denied Jesus three times. He was a coward. But on Pentecost, he was fearless with fire on his head and the Spirit breathed word in and through his mouth. He led the charge. This once cringing coward became the Spirit's apostle to communicate Jesus. Jesus. And, and the two words that I want you to remember in his message show up in verse 23, in verse 32. In verse 36, 23, 32, 36. This Jesus, that's the words. This Jesus, this Jesus was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. This Jesus, this Jesus was delivered up because of lawlessness. 
This Jesus was put on a cross, Peter said. This Jesus was crucified. You ignorant people killed this Jesus, but God raised him. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. And when Peter thundered those gospel words, the strangest thing happened. The people were cut to the heart. Verses 37 and 38. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, to receive the Spirit of God, you must believe the Word of God. You must respond by faith. And you must let that faith be something that begins in the heart and works its way out. And so, Peter says, you need to repent. You know what the word repent literally means? It means to change your mind. It means to change your mind. You know, I mean, I'm going to change my mind about my self-sufficiency to Christ's all-sufficiency. I'm going to change my mind from pride to humility. I'm going to change my mind from denying my weaknesses to confessing my weaknesses. You know what? Some of us... Uh, some of us are afraid to get to know ourselves. And as a result, we're afraid for others to get to know us. Even more afraid. But God will never ask you to deny reality. He will never ask you to hide behind your weaknesses or to hide your weaknesses. He will never ask you to be afraid of your faults because there's not one fault that Jesus didn't die for. Repent. Peter says. And that, that means that Jesus is the most knowledgeable person about my life and that he is the most qualified person to run my life. <laughs> to repent means I don't know myself as well as Jesus knows me. And to repent means I, I need to follow him because he knows, he knows what's best for my life better than I know what's best for my life repentance repentance has to do with I've, I, i'm not going to resist any longer i'm not going to resist god any longer some of you are resisting god you're resisting him right now you're just resisting him i just don't want you know what stop resisting in fact that is your sole contribution to salvation <laughs> you know that what you know what your sole contribution to salvation is stop resisting that's it that's it repent repent Repent, and then baptism is the external act which signifies and demonstrates what God has done. Baptism showcases not my work, not my effort, not my muscle. Baptism stresses God's strength in raising my dead soul back to life. And it's in the name of Jesus, meaning I belong to Him. I'm His. He's my King. And you know what happened? 3,000 people made that decision on that day. 3,000 entered the kingdom of God. 3,000 were forgiven. 3,000 were given the Holy Spirit. 3,000 were baptized. It's Pentecost, meaning there's more to come. Church, we are the more to come. Like Moses of old, God rescues us and then fills us with his Holy Spirit to teach us a new way of life. Have you repented? Have you done that? 
Have you changed your mind? If not, why not? Have you demonstrated your repentance and your trust and your faith and the fact that you belong to Christ? Have you demonstrated that in Christian baptism? If not, why not? You will never turn your will and your life over to any other kind of God except a loving and merciful one. Why would you? But now that you know, why would you not? Peter says, literally, in verse 40, let yourselves be saved from this crooked, crooked generation. Let yourself be saved. Stop resisting. Trust. Put your hope in Christ. He's the gospel. Christ is the gospel. The gospel is for all. The gospel is all about Christ. And then, the third truth, the gospel creates a supernatural community. Look at this community in verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Awe came upon them all. What, what, what started in the upper room of the house spilled out into the streets, and Jerusalem, Jerusalem began to see the true temple of God. So the temple is now, see, what, what's going on in Acts is the tale of two temples. A temple of legalism and self-sufficiency, stone and mortar, versus a spirit-filled temple, flesh and blood people, a supernatural community. That's what we see here. All made possible by the very spirit and presence of Christ. Do you understand that this is what's going on right here, right here, right now? It's not just another ordinary group. We're, we're having a Bible study. We're just not, we're just like an ordinary religious class. <laughs> According to these verses, we are a divinely empowered, supernaturally endowed community. In other words, church, what's happening right now is not to be thought of as a foxhole to hunker down in until we die and go to heaven. That's not much fun to me. We're not a foxhole. We're an embassy of heaven on earth. People in this world are wondering, what would our world look like if God were in charge? Well, read verses 42 to 47. That's the answer. Well, you know, what will heaven be like? Read verses 42 to 47. That's the answer. Awe. Many wonders. Signs. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Sharing, distributing as any had had need. Day by day, they attended the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the favor. That's, this is our destiny. And God wants us to start living our destiny today, right here, right now. And we can only do it with his help. We're a supernatural community. Now, are we praying like a supernatural community? Are we learning biblical truth like a supernatural community? Are we connecting with one another like we're a supernatural community? Are we relating and forgiving and reconciling to one another like we're a supernatural community? Are we giving generously like we're a supernatural community? I was really challenged by these words of Francis Chan this week. 
Francis Chan's an author and a, a pastor. He wrote, churchgoers all across the nation say the Holy Spirit has entered them. They claim that God has given them a supernatural ability to follow Christ, put their sin to death, and serve the church. Christians talk about being born again and say that they were dead and now they've come to life. And yet when those outside the church see no difference in our lives, they begin to question our integrity, our sanity, or even worse, our God. And can you blame them? Jesus gave his spirit to us so that his work may be done through us. And there's only one hero in the book of Acts. His name is Jesus. And he's the, in fact, he's the, he's the hero of every story in the Bible. Because the Bible is a story about how God meets our weakness with his, with, with his gift of grace. And God's greatest and most wonderful gift of grace to us is himself. Himself. He knows how hard life is. He knows what's going to happen once we leave these doors. He knows that there are times that you feel that you don't have any idea what you're doing and that you need wisdom. And he knows how broken this world is. God knows that. And you may say, why doesn't he do something? He has! He has sent his son who died, who is resurrected, who reigns, and who has poured out his spirit. God doesn't drizzle his spirit. He pours it out. He never calls us to a task without giving us what we need to do it. And he's never going to send you anywhere without going with you. And he'll never tell you to do something without giving you what you need to do it. He gives you what you need by giving you himself. And in giving you himself, he pours out his amazing, his forgiving, his rescuing, his transforming, his wisdom-giving grace. And what that means is that if you're a parent, you are never alone in your house with your children. It means someone else walks the hallways and stands in the family room with you. Someone else rides in the van with you on yet another school activity. Someone else walks with you as you enter your teenager's room to confront her about something she did. As an educator, tomorrow morning in school, someone else is with you. Someone else is with you to give knowledge, to equip your students, to impart job skills. Someone else is with you in the parent-teacher conference. As an officer of the law, someone else accompanies you in pursuit of justice and community service. Someone else is with you. You're not alone. As a medical professional, someone else helps you patiently heal the patient. Someone else is with you. The very Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of in, and see, he's in us, you see, that's why. So from heaven, he floods his Holy Spirit. Oh, in, in, when Jesus was in the flesh, he was only one place, at, only, he'd only be one place at a time. But now, his eternal spirit has flooded us. So, so the, the, the come and see temple of Jerusalem has now become the go and tell temple of the church. Christ's presence with us, Christ's power through us. Okay. You know, after a baptism in my home church, I, 
the congregation would typically sing an old chorus. Maybe some of you know it. Turn your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Huh? Sweet, it's very sweet. Christ's presence with us, Christ's power through us. The things of earth actually get clearer because we begin to see through kingdom eyes. We have kingdom perspective. We have a kingdom point of view. And we see needs that others ignore. And we lean in where others say, I don't want to get involved. And we love in such a way that makes those who receive such love curious about the God we worship. And then next week you bring that guest and they wonder, what was that? I sensed a presence. Yeah. Christ's spirit in us. Christ's power through us. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your goodness. Thank you that we are able to remember Jesus crucified, dead, buried, raised, spirit poured out upon his people so that now as his temple, as his body, oh Lord, we might make much of you and help this crazy world see what heaven is truly like. We can't do this on our own, Lord. You know that. Thank you. Thank you that you equip us and prepare us and you pour out your spirit in and through us. And God's people said, amen.